that kind of story would replay time after time after time after time with NCO, airman, or officer. Yeah. So when people ask, why, why do you love these guys so much? Why, why did that, how could they have supported your career? I go, because of the way they were and how good they were. That, it, it, this literally is yeah. the truth. Every story will have the same theme to it. It would happen right. over and over and over and over again. And when I hear about our American heroes like John Chapman and know how much a hero, they, the, the, I mean, that's an American hero story that's going to be forever, and it is forever. But knowing the stuff that happened in the background with people trying their damnedest to get air overhead during the heat of Anaconda. Right. Knowing that, and my John Chapman's a hero. That is not disputable, and I'm so happy and glad that Dan Schilling, who is a great American too, wrote so brilliantly in that piece, and they're going to make a movie. The whole thing is wonderful. The whole thing is wonderful for yeah. the country and everybody. Okay. For sure. Besides that hero, there is a Pete Donnelly, though, that is at the talk in Anaconda with 10th Mountain and 5th Special Forces Group and uh, the Marines and uh, our Joint Command, our JSOC, all those elements. And the person who saved, that I deem saved more lives than anybody I can think of is Pete Donnelly. What Pete Donnelly did during that combat anaconda is, um, now I know a lot of people know about it, but we cannot, uh, I, I can't even begin to express how much that we should constantly remember what he did and it saved lives. Um, we would have dropped other bad bombs. You know, we dropped some bad bombs because we, you know, you had 37, we called them ETACs at the time, remember? We we didn't say ETAC yep. yet. We hadn't developed that. But there were 37 ETACs in a very small battle area. And everybody, you know, with their unique combat perspective, and no combat perspective is wrong. I, I don't sure. tell someone who is in combat on the side of a hill, oh, yeah, you're wrong. No, no, I, you're not right, going right. to get that from me, ever. Yeah. A combat warrior is never going to get second guessing from me about whatever actions they took but it took someone realizing hey when we're going to drop a bomb a 2000 pounder a jdam whatever and we've got an elevation error problem because you know the difference between arming it at thousand feet two thousand feet three thousand feet <clears throat> it makes a difference um mm -hmm. and it's going to arm fuse properly whatever that all has to be calculated but when we drop a 2000 pound bomb I don't care who you work for, whether you're talking to the president of the United States or you're with JSOC or Task Force 58 or the Marines or Special Forces this or Navy SEAL Team this. Doesn't matter. A 2000 bomb doesn't give a shit. Right. If you're close to it, it's going to kill you. 
period. Done. Yep. And you can't drop bad bombs in a close area because you will kill Americans or friendlies. That's going to happen. Right. That's unavoidable. So we should avoid it. I mean, it, it's avoidable before that happens. And it takes Pete Donnelly's sure. of the world. And Pete Donnelly individually is responsible for what turned out to be successful. It could have turned out to be one of the biggest military disasters in the history of the United States of America. And I can, I will debate any army general, any soft general, any, anybody at any time, any place with teams of PhDs that it would have been a disaster without Pete Dunn. I can go to my grave knowing that that is true. That's why I love these kids. Wow. I mean, that's yeah. why I love the PDs of the world. Um, yeah. So the guy that was with me originally when um, 9-11 happened was Master Sergeant Tim Stamey. Okay. So I had just come from a job working for the four-star SOCOM commander. I was a special assistant. And we had the Udari bombing range incident before I took over oh, yeah. the 18th ASAP. And as you know, we, we lost some great Americans in that. And um, General Holland, just to show you how great a commander he was, he knew that I was going to take over this air ground group. Of course, at the time, it was a different group, and that's a different story. So I was supposed to be the commander of the first ASOG uh, in the state of Washington. Okay. It was under 12th Air Force at the time. Uh, and it had one, it had one weather squadron, an ASOS and a little soft attachment. I think okay. it was yeah. the second bat, second Ranger bat, probably. That yeah, that sounds right. Fort Lewis. Sorry. Really, my old man stuff keeps coming back. So it was at Fort Lewis. So, um, that's where I was going to go, but he knew I was going to be in this air ground business. Uh, and so he let me, now this is a four-star travel and the four-star travel, it's, it's a big deal. You know, you got ambassadors and everybody, you know, and he says, hey, Mike, I want you to um, take three or four days and study this Udari bombing range incident. So he says, yeah, you get back to us, you know, you get back, you know, and he's in Qatar, UAE, you know, he's literally traveling all over the place. And so I went and I talked to the people. They were in the, you know, we had a little detachment that would come over and do the rotation. Uh, it was a SWAL rotation, and this is before OEF. They would do SWAL rotations in Kuwait. Mm -hmm. The 332, the um, expeditionary, it would become a wing, but the ex expeditionary group would kind of own the TACP when they got there. So we would send them, okay. and then they would report to the 332 AEG, you know, upon arrival. I went, okay. I met everybody. Of course, you know, all, uh, these guys have been my friend. Face Nichols and Matt Newlandswander, I'd known from the Air Force Academy and uh, Face Nichols, who was the commander. We'd been to the group commander course together and we just seen each other. So, you know, and says, hey, uh, I know that you're guys, but I love them. I'll take care of them. I said, okay, uh, take care of them. He says, but, you know, this is kind of devastating to us because, 
you know, we lost Special Forces and we lost uh, TACP and we, you know, and the issue was the um, the laser, um, an F-18 uh, in in a in sandstorm uh, a desert uh, kind of environment. With the problem with the laser, uh, or you know, any kind of beacon you have a laser is that you 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 can see either the origin or the target. You can see both of them. Right, right. But when you're looking at a, a laser, a beam, you, you don't know if that's the origin or the target. You you, you don't know. Nobody. Knows. Right, right. I mean, we have m- m- more elaborate systems now, and it's it's not as that simple. But at the time, it was just that simple. So if you're in F-18 sure. at five or six thousand feet and over a desert floor where you can't see anything. Uh, and just a little obscuration, you know, up to maybe a thousand feet. You can see the beam. That's a 50-50 chance. Sure. And so now I'm not a Hornet guide. So I just know that when you tell me it's a 50-50 chance, that's in the in the close air support business that I'm at. That is, um, if it's not 99.999% in the close air support business, it ain't good enough. Yeah. I'm not willing to take a 50-50 chance yeah. on, on a bomb drop for sure. But we didn't, arguably, we didn't know it at the time. So that terrible yeah. accident happens. And I don't want to go over a lot of the names associated with it, but it's a terrible accident that happens. And it will live in my, my memory that I didn't command anything then. I was a special assistant to the sink at that time. But I'd gotten back, so I'd gotten smarter on it. And then I left US SOCOM and I was going to go take command of the first ASOC. And my family was in Washington, D.C. They were about to get on an airplane. They were going to meet me in Seattle. Uh, our household goods were being shipped somewhere over Kansas about that time en route to the state of Washington. Um, we had a lovely on-base home at Fort Lewis. The first, uh, the, the I-Corps commander had sent me, uh, you know, a welcoming letter and saying, hey, you know, understand your call sign, you know, three-star general speaking to a colonel, it's kind of weird. And he says in the letter, understand your call sign is LA. So LA, welcome, you know, like he's, like, okay, you know, maybe this is all good. You know, I'm, you know, we're all happy. And I'm in a car. I think I'm in Louisiana or somewhere, you know, going from Tampa, Florida to Seattle, uh, Washington. And uh, General Holland calls me. Oh, the secretary does. He says, hey, Mike, can you talk to the, the general? Oh, my God. General Holland? Yes, I'm, I'm ready right now. <laughs> Hold him away. I'm ready to go. <laughs> um, and he says, uh, hey, he says, where are you? How's it going? Yeah, he, he's so great. He was such a great commander. He's so easy. I, I love yeah. that man so much. He goes, where are you? I said, uh, sir, I'm on I-20. Uh, I think I'm almost to Shreveport. He goes, oh, okay, well. What I want you to do is oh, man. turn around at the next gas station. <laughs> okay. 
<laughs> he says, I want you to go direct to Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And I go, Fort Bragg? Um, he said, yep. He says, uh, you're going to be the 18th ASOG group command. I go, no shot. I mean, that's what I wanted, but, you know, it's a newborn unit. Yeah, yeah. I get to jump. I could do all those kinds of things. First ASOG, I couldn't have done that, or, you know, the other ASOG, yeah. I couldn't have done yeah. that. But meanwhile, all your stuff's oh, like yeah, all my stuff's heading going. that way. Your your family's getting ready yeah. to go that way. <laughs> so I immediately get on the horn to my um, my wife, who I consider to be uh, Superwoman. <laughs> She's better than Superwoman. Anyway, she um, she goes. So we're not going to Seattle. I said no. She says, "Well, we have plane tickets." I know. I said, "But you haven't left yet, right?" No, no, we haven't left yet. So I said, don't, don't. I said, um, I'm going to Fort Bragg. Uh, on the weekend, try to come and get you guys driving lines. Because, you know, from Fort Bragg to Washington, D.C., that, that's that's doable, do that. yeah. Uh, but not yeah. Seattle. So uh, she turns around, and then, you know, we get our household goods, you know, turned around, and they're coming, you know, back. Uh, and I get to Fort Bragg, and I'm the 18th ASOG command. And I go, how does this stuff happen to me? I, I mean, that's what I wanted. That was my number one. But you know, you don't get you, you don't get to pick where you command. You know. What was the catalyst? I mean, what ha what what changed everyone's mind? Well, this like, is what, what happened. The... And I don't want to mention names because these are all great people. So the guy who was going to go to the 18th ASOG. A great American fighter pilot, an A-10 guy, okay, who who is my classmate at the Air Force Academy, and an all-around great guy, okay. and we were in the same group commanders course together, and I had prepared him to go to airborne school. While we were in group commanders course at Maxwell, we were running every day, push-ups, pull-ups. We were doing the whole thing, and I said, "You're going to do just fine." I mean, I was with him for three weeks. You know, I said, "You're." Gonna just fine. So you're motivated. You're a great officer. I said, actually, you're in better shape probably than I am. You know, I don't see a problem. There's only one thing you can't do in airborne school. Like it's a no thinking school. You, you literally, you don't think. You just do. Right. But you just do. Just just do it. And no thinking. Literally, there's no thinking. <laughs> In this. Yeah, <laughs> I know that the army probably doesn't like me saying that, but it's it's the truth. There's no thinking in it. It's true. Yeah. You know, um, I said, don't ever say you quit, even if you're hurt. They'll know if you're hurt because you just attempt to make the run or whatever. Now you can go to mm -hmm. the the doctor, or I mean, you can go to the clinic or whatever. You can do that. You know, but don't ever say you quit. Never. Right. Okay. He had called me and prepped me. And this is before I knew I was going to the 18th ASOG. He goes, hey, LA, I just, uh, I didn't finish uh, airborne school. I'm like, what? He says, so I think we should swap assignments. And I said, hey, you know, I know you're smarter than I am because you graduated in top of the class at the Air Force Academy, I was kind of in the bottom of the class, and I know you're a fighter pilot, so I know you're real smarter than I am, 
I said, but that's not how the personnel system in the Air Force works. We're told where to go. I said, we can't just decide to swap commands. It, 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 it can't happen like that. He says, okay. He says, well, well, let me work it. I go, uh, okay. Um, I have orders. I got to leave. I got to get over here. And if I hear different, I'll change. Well, no shit. I heard different. But it was from the general <laughs> telling me I was going to the 18th A song and not the first yeah, A song. Yeah. Um, and he would go on to the first A song. Great guy. Troops loved me. Turned out to be a great TACP group commander. He did. Mm-hmm. He, superior guy. Um, it's just that airborne jumping requirement. And frankly, from my point of view, when you try to make a a 45-year-old or 42-year-old Air Force colonel make him airborne qualified like that, that that might not work. Yeah. Um, It's almost like they should have put, should have made like an MTT form or something, you know, like, hey, colonel, come over here. We're going to put you through the paces. We're going to throw, you know, just offline or something. In the flying business, they would have given kind of an an executive course to get up to speed in a particular weapon system, you know, and after he had, you know, sim rides and real rides and they say, okay, get a checkout. And now, okay, yeah, now, now. So anyway, but for me, I can't tell you how happy I was. I mean, really, I can't, I, I, I can't explain it. And I go, how does this happen yeah. to me? I mean, literally, he was, like I said, top of the class, top of this, top of this, fighter pilot. I'm a non-rated puke. <laughs> you know, why does it happen to me? I don't know. Okay. But the question, and my dad used to tell me, he says, he says, don't look opportunity in the mouth and talk bad about it. Take it, run with it, go. You know, you can talk about it later when you're an old man, but at the time you take it, you you don't, you don't hesitate. You take it, you go, you press. Um, and that's what I did. So my first act as the 18th Pesach commander is I wanted to go to Udara. And I wanted to, to put people at ease. I said, this is the way I'm going to work when I make, because tra- I'm going to travel to see all my units. Everybody that, you know, because the 18th Exile, we had Fort Drum, you know, Kentucky, you know, Louisiana, Alabama, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, you know, um, and I wanted to see everybody. I wanted to see everybody and I wanted them to see me. So I said, when I make these travels, I said, I love my officers. I said, but I don't travel with officers. I'll have an exec. I don't travel with an exec. Well, who are you going to travel with? I said, an NCO. That's how it's going to be all the time. So what I want the chief to be doing and my officer DOs is figuring out which NCO at this level, and not a chief, uh, which, who should accompany, you know, the commander on this trip or this trip or this trip or this trip? I said, Lord, I'm speaking freely, and here's the rule. It's a little funny thing I'm going to do. They will carry my bags, and I will carry their bags. 
That's the rule. <laughs> That's how we're going to work it. So they say, they can say when they talk to their friends, yeah, I had to carry the colonel's bags. That will be true. <laughs> that will be true. It's yeah, just some yeah. little, you know, I know it sounds stupid, but I've done that. My no, entire no. Career. It's funny. I'm going to carry your bags. Yeah, yeah. You'll carry my bags. Oh, okay. You know, I, I just, <laughs> so the guy that they picked was Tim Steamy. And that, now it wasn't 9-11 yet. So we went over to Udari. It's my first big trip overseas. Yeah. Tim's a great American. And um, and 9-11 happens. Oh, you were in Udari when all that I was, happened? I was actually when, on when the range. Okay. Physically on wow. the range. Um, and Tim was giving me his perspective. And he could, get, you know, I told him, I said, you, I don't I, I want to know everything operational that you see is a problem or someone hasn't done this or someone hasn't done this, some training aspect, some piece of equipment. I, there, There's, you tell me anything. And I said, the only thing I'll be mad is if you held back and you don't tell me something, I will actually be mad at that. Yeah. That's the only way you could make me mad is not tell me something. You can't make me mad or upset by telling me something's broken or, you know. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. on my face or something like that. You, you can't make me mad doing that. You can't. All right, right. But if you don't tell me something and you knew it, uh, that'll make me mad. It really will. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that, I have a limitation. So that's one of my limitations. And um, Sure. 9-11 happens and uh, one... I go to the TACP Association. I was just fast forward. I said, you don't need to introduce me. You know, uh, you know, Michael Longoria graduated from high school and then he went to the Air Force Academy and, you know, did some things and, you know, it was the bottom of his class and he saw the error of his ways in third grade and became a kind of a good student in the fourth. Uh, you know, forget about all that resume. I just show him this video that I made for him about the start of 9-11. The only problem with it, and I can I can pass it to you, um, is that I'd love to see I it. use yeah. music that is from the last of the Mohicans. The okay. music is perfect, but I haven't paid for it, so no one can use that oh, music right, right. because it it it, it would copyrights be and all legal that. copyrights yeah. and all that stuff. Um, even though I I tell everybody that that's where the music's from, I don't you know. You know, I haven't plagiarized it and I haven't done a new thing. Sure, sure. But there's nobody can make any money at all by replaying it. So it right. And it played just for the TACP Association. I said, this is just for the TACP Association. So you don't have to introduce me. Who cares about who LA is? I said, this will introduce me better than anything. And what I walk them through is the role of the Ford air controller in all wars. And then I got one of those uh, hero shots, you know, the kind that uh, it shows like seven guys on a ridge and, you know, the, the, the mountain part is dark and they're dark and, you know, the sunlight is up here and you think they're yeah. in full combat, you know, regalia, you know. I said, you know, American airmen came down from the skies uh, and they've always done it. And we've always done forward air control in the air, on the ground. And I said, um, 
We were going to do that same thing after 9-11. So we play 9-11, and I said, this is what happened. And I tell him exactly what happened with General Wald. General Wald, the 9th Air Force commander, was at the Pentagon when the Pentagon was struck. Uh, at that time, he was given, you know, uh, deployment, our planning orders, and all of those things were going out. So I go through that timeline, yeah. hour one, hour two, hour three. And then General Wald and his IP, Major Guns Gersten, got an F-16 uh, D model, and they were flying back to Shaw Air Force Base. And I said, there was at least a two-hour period there where they were the only aviators in the sky over the continent of the United States of America. I mean, I mean, I mean wow. they were, that was it. Um, and I said, all this deployment stuff happens. And General Wald told someone on the staff, he goes, you've been trying to contact, you know, in the 18th, yeah. Well, where the hell is LA? So I put that quote in there. Where the hell is LA? You know, where is he? You know, he, he's not on duty. You know, you know, 9-11 happens, you know, where is the little non-rated puke, you know, guy? Where in the hell is he? <laughs> and nobody knows, apparently, on his staff. So that word got to me, or got to my staff. And um, but that got to them because they called the 332nd AEG in Kuwait, and they knew I was there. Oh, okay. So they get Colonel Face Nichols, and they say, "Hey." Uh, Tell LA he's got to talk to General Wald immediately. All's going to happen. He, 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 he's got to talk. Yeah. So, Face Nichols calls me on the range. He goes, Hey, LA. I go, Hey, Face, what's up? I mean, I actually have this quote Hey, what's up? He goes, Hey, you, you need to talk to the boss. And I said something. I know it's stupid, but I said it. I go, Well, which boss? You know, I got lots of bosses. You know, which boss? Which boss? Army right. boss here. You, you, you're kind of like my boss. I'm a boss. You know, I mean, I got all kind of bosses. The 18 Corps is my boss. You know, I mean, I, I literally have many bosses. He goes, hey, I'm talking about the big air boss. Oh, it's your Walt. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll do it right now. He says, I'll make the match. I said, okay, I'm ready. Yeah, I'm out on the range, you know. <laughs> okay. I said, Colonel Longoria, sir. He goes, hey. I think he said something. Where the hell are you? I said, sir, I'm on the Udari bombing range as we speak. He goes, oh, okay. Well, we're coming. We're moving fast. Meet me at PSAB with a plan. My response is, sir, copy. PSAB, ASAP. I'll be there. And that's how the forward air control story starts for OEF, that, that uh, part right there. So yeah, yeah. the reason I, I like playing it is because it tells, it, it, it captures my boss, it captures the entire environment. And I said, my singular task was to get as many angels and heroes to the battlefield in Iraq and Afghanistan as quickly as possible. Yeah. I said, they, and I say, they will do the rest. I mean, that's, that's how I briefed it in the beginning. 
Tom Briefin in the middle. That's how I talk about it historically. I go, that was it. Uh, that was the essence, I thought, of my job. I wasn't going to wait to be told that there was a requirement for whatever. I knew there was a requirement for it. Nobody have to tell. I said, what war planner is going to tell me something that I don't already know? I know the capabilities that these guys brought. I knew it. Uh, I had to fight battles to get them involved. Did I have to micromanage them once I got them into combat? Zero. Nothing. Not at all. They did the rest. Literally. They did the entire rest of it. That doesn't mean we didn't have these little fights. You know, how many and are you going to take this and why are you moving this over here and why are you moving this here and why here and why here and why here? Constantly being second guessed by uh, some at a Madgecom, you know, in our business to go, hey, we don't have a requirement. I go, yeah, you do. It, it, yeah. You just don't see it yet. I'm telling you, it's a requirement. Right. And, um, and the rest literally is, is history. Because you get everybody involved. And I just thought about all of my, I think about all of my heroes, but specifically my Silver Star heroes. What would the world have been like if we didn't have them? Not that they're heroes because they got the Silver Star. Of course they're heroes. And, and, and yes, they're heroes. But I think about what if we didn't have the Pete Donnelly? What if we didn't have all of these heroes? And what if they weren't in combat? Would someone else have stepped up to the plate? Maybe. Maybe. But it's not assured. With them, it's assured. Without them, it's not assured. It simply is not. Uh, And that's the difference. When I'm talking to people and they, you know, try to, a lot of authors have, you know, wanted to replay the Anaconda thing and what the Air Force did right, what they did wrong, what the Army did wrong, what the, you know, and everybody, everybody's got their own perspective. Every warrior who was at in a battle, I respect their perspective. That doesn't mean the next thing that they say I would agree with. I mean, someone might say, well, I was on the side of that mountain and, um, and, um, and this is, and this happened. Therefore, CAS sucks and the Air Force doesn't care about CAS. I go, okay, I love you. I'm with you right here. You're on the side of that mountain and you did this and you did that and you did this. I'm with you, brother. I'm with you. My job was to get CAS. Air power to your fight. Now, you can critique me. That's fine. I, I, I'm open for criticism. You know, I could have done things faster. I could have. I could have. I could have cheated more. I could have. I broke so many damn rules, so many different days that I can't even. I, I'm. I'm afraid one of these days they're just going to come and arrest me, or. <laughs> A list of a hundred things, and I my only response will be, I should have had two hundred. So you're not sorry for it. Yeah. I'm not. Not only am I not sorry, I wish I would have done it more. 
if I had more TACPs to put into this fight, if I had more Shaq Boshanes and Pete Donnelly's and Don Tharps and Byron Reisner, and you know, I mean, I, I would have put them in. Um, yeah. All of them were like, you know, put me in coach. I, I mean, all of them. Like, you know, yeah. Like our business is a volunteer business. You know, I mean, that's. I know, right. Um, that's kind of people those guys are that would just, they, they can't wait to go right. for sure. Uh, yeah. But those stories uh, about those individuals are the things that make, um, you know, the first part of OEF and then OIF uh, more juicy. Uh, I think, you yeah. know, you know, besides just reading yeah. some of the history, although um, the more you learn about uh, John Chapman, you go, wow, that's, uh, it's 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 so heroic. I can't I I I can't even have words to describe it. But I know that mentality is in all of these warriors. Mm. I mean, the Mark Hurst and the Kevin Vances, you know, and the Tim Stamies, yeah. uh, and the Steve Tomats, yeah. the Eric Brandenburgs, you know, the Jim Fairchilds, you know, that's in a, a, a right. commander that's in the he he won in our business yet. But he's in a strike eagle, and they're trying to strafe with a strike eagle, which is kind of weird anyway. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's literally kind of right. weird. Uh, responding to all of the danger close stuff. Everything in that thing was danger close. Everything. Every bomb drop. Every yeah. single thing. Yep. You know, danger close is supposed to be that kind of unique thing that we do when, when well, you know, it's the last thing that we we may or may not do. But it's supposed to be a little special. Well, that was all. Everything was danger close. Everything. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think uh, Kevin Vance had even fired personally from his own weapon over 200 rounds into the enemy. And if he'd had more, he would have shot more. I mean, like. <laughs> right, right. Um, and he was the pointy end guy for Captain Self, the Army Ranger, who was there. Yeah. Which uh, another story for my young officer friends is that when you when you write a combat decoration on a hero, it's the greatest thing you're ever going to do. You're going to tell it like it was. That's true. You're always going to do that. But you have to listen to multiple uh, data sources, if you will. You have to make some kind of assessment. Uh, and it's not just the number of adjectives that you throw in to uh, your writing, okay? Adjectives are great. Uh, verbs and nouns and shit that happen, that's much better. Yeah. It, it is. I mean, I, I don't want to be gruesome, but, you know, 15 enemy killed, you know, this tank taken out, this, this, I mean, it, it, it all has to be in uh, a decoration. The circumstances involved is what makes it heroic. That's true. But for the young officers who get an opportunity to write a combat decoration on a great American NCO is um, an honor. It's not a burden. It's an honor. So when I think about all those guys, I go, God. <laughs> um, 
And my other goal was to, and I told, now this time General Mosley had swapped out with General Wall. When we started having all of these decoration boards. And before you get a decoration, even though your commanders support you and write it, it goes to a big board. That's the way we did it in the Air Force. And yeah. you got a lot of colonels that represent multiple weapon systems and all kinds of things. And yeah, yeah. Um, sometimes you debate these things. Jerome Mosley made me a promise, and he was a great commander, by the way, the greatest CFAC I've ever worked for, ever, and I've worked for many. Um, he said, what do you want, L.A.? I said, I want permanent membership on every decoration board. And I made sure, I'm not trying to virtue signal here, but it's, it was the honor of my life. Every combat controller, every tactic, every combat weather, that, uh, and every PJ. I said, we need to make distinctions between doing great combat meritorious service stuff and a valorous part. Yeah, sure. And that separates exactly at the Bronze Star level. There's a combat, great achievement in combat, intense environment, but it's really the highest meritorious achievement you can get in combat. And then there are their Valor Awards. Now, the Valor Awards start off a little bit lower. They can start off, you know, a Valor Award can be at a at now an achievement or a combination level. But really, the, sure. the important Valor Awards start at the Bronze Star with Valor. And then Silver Star, right. and then the Service Cross, and then the Medal of Honor. With, in the flying business, the, the Air Medal or the Distinguished Flying Cross. And so I sat on eight consecutive decoration boards, the only Air Force colonel to sit on all eight in a row. Wow. And I will just say this. I've heard a lot of, you know, things, good, bad, or different, or whatever. And I, I don't, it doesn't bother me. Uh, I made sure that every special warfare airman was appropriately decorated. Now, in the case of um, our most decorated individuals, and I sat in the discussion with JSOC, I know who said what, who did what, when they said it, how they said it, what they said. Um, and all the JSOC commanders at the time of the original meeting was that no one was going to get higher than a service cross. So Navy Cross, Army Distinguished Service Cross, or Air Force Cross. And that you will see uh, the awards in the Air Force decorated that way. And then the Navy kind of changed. They did a reevaluation. Uh, the Army did a reevaluation and didn't make any change. The Navy didn't make a change which should have prompted an appropriate discussion, and it did. And I'm so proud of the United States Air Force as a corporate entity, and that's multiple service chiefs, the chiefs of our Air Force, and the secretaries of the Air Force. We should be proud of all of them that helped 
this process work the way it's supposed to work. And because John Chapman is an American hero. And all of those people who received an Air Force Cross are American heroes too. Um, To include um, our PJ, uh, Cunningham, uh, who was in Anaconda and received the Air Force Mm Cross. So um, uh, those are big deals. And for me, it was always hard because if I had an Army commander that would call me and tell me, that they want to write the army commander, not not my ALO or not my squadron, Air Force squadron commander. They, they said, "No, LA, um, your guys are hero. I'm going to write them uh, Silver Star packages." I said, "Okay, you tell me what I need to do to help you, and thank you, sir, for being a great commander." Yeah. Some of those discussions with the army went like that. Some of the discussions with the Army were different, as you well can imagine. Yeah, the yeah. battalion commander told me, for example, that they didn't need the Air Force even before OIF, as we're about to now launch from Kuwait into Iraq. They said, I, I don't need right, the Air right. Force. I said, well, let me tell you, you're going to tell me that one time. Because yeah. the second time I moved that TACP element out, and I don't have enough, so I'll send them somebody else. Yeah. That's going to happen. I don't have time for bullshit. I don't have time for Washington, D.C. games. I don't have time for um, your, you know, Army is this, Air Force is this. I literally don't have time for that bullshit, and I'm not going to listen to it. And neither are my heroes going to have to listen to that. I'll move them out. And if you don't think yeah. I can, Check to see if they're still there. I mean, <laughs> that's how I thought I had to be. Some of those commanders, yeah. and I won't mention their name, there are only a few, didn't want my TACP. Yeah, they were stupid, literally. And some yeah. of those Army commanders were the greatest commanders that I've ever seen in my life. So when people says, well, the Army is this way, or the Army is this way, I go, it depends. It depends on that commander. And some are great and some are not. Um, so now those are the stories that you just don't, I, you, you normally can't get that out of the the normal history. Uh, I'm right. happy to share it. And I don't want to do it in a way to see, you know, how great uh, L.A. was. But L.A. had to do a lot of shit to get my heroes <laughs> in. Since that time, yeah. they don't need L.A worth frip frap because they got it they did it they're the heroes i mean that it's just a, it's just a fact yeah it's like um uh that's why i love them that's why i love them all i i do uh and people say well how did you get promoted to general i i don't have a clue how i got promoted to general i don't uh i would never recommend this exact path that i took i wouldn't even know how to recommend it I don't know how to recommend. But if you surround yourself with great people constantly in every assignment, for whatever reason, I was surrounded by great people. And I mean great people, heroes, smart people, really smart people. And it's just like when I did my DARPA thing, 
I mean, really? I'm sitting in a group with PhDs? Uh, there is no way. No way I could ever match MIT wits with these PhDs. No way. Um, and I listened to everything they had to say. Everything. And I wanted to know what they had to say. So that's a privilege when you get to listen to people. Like that. That, 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 that's, that's never a burden. That's a privilege. Right. That's why I feel privileged. Uh, every day I feel privileged. Uh, to... Do you think that like you, that people saw something in you that we, we all see that you have, a, you have such a different perspective on things. And like we talked about this before that you, you don't, you don't pull any punches. Like you, you give people the straight dope on whatever subject we're talking about. You're, you're going to tell them exactly how you feel and the truth that as you see it. And I think that's probably where these people, these organizations that, you know, where you, you, you know, humbly say, I don't know how I got there. I think that's how they saw, I think they saw something in you. Like we need to get that perspective in here so we can get the full picture before we start making a decision on these national level, you know, decision-making processes or whatever, the, whatever the, you guys are doing. But yeah, I think you, I think your unique perspective was exactly what they were looking for, for sure. Well, now General Casey told me something like that. And when he promoted me, cause it was army General Casey who was, uh, uh -huh. who, who had become the army chief of staff, but was um, running the Iraq war uh, at the time that I worked for him. Because I was the commanding general for the Joint Task Force to capture, kill high-value targets. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. That seems—I don't know anything about that. I'd like. And to, that was here. Here, I want to be know. honest with you. It was an intelligence organization. Okay. So now, I'm just yeah. saying, if you took an informal poll, call all the fighter pilots in the Air Force that know me, <laughs> and say, "Hey, LA is getting an intelligence job." Okay, number one, they'd be rolling on the floor uh, laughing. <laughs> it's just the truth, yeah. and my feelings aren't hurt by it, because sure, they sure. were equally surprised when I called a couple of my fighter pilot dudes and told them, "Hey, I'm going to be the guy. I'm going to be the guy who decides where Air Force Cyber Command, when we develop it, where it's going to go." I had that special assignment <laughs> at Air Combat Command. They were, laughing. Right, right, right. they were laughing about that because they go, L.A., uh, didn't you just learn how to use the Internet a week ago? Yeah, yeah. But, and, and now you're deciding where Cyber Command's going to go? I mean, they thought it was funny. Okay, so so the backdrop yeah. is it is kind of funny. I mean, it is. Yeah. Uh, funny in a sad way and funny in a happy way, but funny nonetheless. <laughs> so General Casey said, because I told him, I said, sir, um, uh, thank you. For, I, I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work my ass off. I said, but to be honest with you, I'm, a, I'm an operator. I'm, I'm a, I know in the Air Force, I'm a non-rated puke. I said, but in Army speak, I'm an operator. I mean, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a grunt. And he goes, no, 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 I got that. He goes, that's why I wanted you. Yeah. I got a lot of smart intelligence people. He says, but you're going to hunt down, capture or kill these high value targets. And we're going to give you all these resources to do that. Um, I want an operator. 
And I want you to wade through yeah. the through the literally the maze of stuff that you have to wade through. Uh, all all int, all sources of intelligence, um, whether they're electronic or human or you know, whether you got them from sure. the big sky, the little sky, the wherever we get right, right, or right. electronically, uh, you have to wade all of that together to find basically, you know, the Remember the the card deck of bad guys uh, that we were after? Yep. Yeah, those are my targets. I had a list okay. of about fifty to a hundred uh, that would rotate people that would support them and be related to them on these these wiring diagrams that you know we see now are the way that the government kind of can spy on us. <laughs> that yeah. we were doing that in OIF because okay. if you got on a cell phone, we could track it. If you just had the cell phone on, we could track it. If you took the battery out, we could still track you. If you ever came up wow. on the net and said something about something we could track you and we know who you talk to and we know the three people that they talk to and the 16 people that they talk to and the 64 people that they talk to and you know and it goes from there sure sure so my biggest challenge in that particular job was listening to all of the great expertise which i got daily i mean hour by hour. But I wanted to get back to the original information, if it were human, let's say. I wanted the original, where did this come from? Who said what to whom? And I did cause a little wave. That's uh, probably why I never would get another intelligence job. <laughs> I caused a little wave because I said, it seems to me that our entire structure is based on, and I won't give you the number, but a handful of original sources. And then we all talk about that source and we build these elaborate things, but the number of original sources hasn't changed. We've somehow inflated, not, not not by lying or doing something wrong. We, we've just inflated naturally one report that follows on another report that talks about this report that talks about this report. And we call that in the social media business. It's like this weird piling on and we're exaggerating claims because we continue to repeat things that people have said about what people have said about what people have said and we've already talked about what people have said and not about the real origin of the intelligence oh uh, yeah and so i in other words we have self-reported ourselves through the wickets okay and so i kind of force fed and i will say this that the one person that probably would have agreed to me was uh, General Michael Flynn. He probably would have agreed with me. At okay. the time, at the time, he didn't. 
Okay. I won't go into a lot of details because sure, we're sure. not on each other's Christmas card list. Right, I, right. I just leave it as it is. Um, okay. So, but I said, this is crazy. It's a house of cards. <laughs> it literally is a house of cards. And I'm looking for more meat down here. I need more meat. I cannot yeah. target. If you're going to target uh, a high value target, just generally speaking, mm -hmm. you need a lot of substance. That you you got to have that background because nothing you'll not you'll not be able to sort out different information that you receive if you sure. if you don't have a substantial understanding. Uh, and a lot of smart people to have that, and we need that. But you also can't target unless you have the highest fidelity surveillance that you can make the entire system point at right there. And if you're wrong by an hour, like at a particular location, you fail. Yeah. You know, if they yeah. go from one location to another location to another location, and let's just say you're 30 minutes behind, yeah, it's yeah. failure. So I, that's about as far as I can go and all of the structure associated with it. And the other thing that sure. we did that was very important that I thought, I spent a time in Lyon, France. Um, to put a red notice out on each of our high-value targets. In other words, through the international, through Interpol, uh, you know, the international policing organization. Yep. Basically, it's they're a huge database. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> and I wanted a red notice on every high-value target um, that we were tracking because we couldn't. You never knew of them. Were they in Afghanistan? Were they in Iraq? Were they in Syria? Were they in Israel? Were they in the United States? Were they in, you know, now the problem with the United States was uh, complicated. Um, and depending on the, the the third country where they may have been, the uh, levels of complication rose or, and if they made it back to the United States, it was very complicated and I couldn't touch it. Ah, okay. Like, that seems odd. It seems like that'd be the easiest place to get them if you came back to the States. Yeah, well, I handed it off a I lot guess that would be... to other agencies. Did a lot of handoffs. Okay, okay. I handed off to National gotcha. Mission Element that, that okay. I will describe, and I handed off to other three-letter agencies. That, that They were all working for me. So, you know, I had, I had FBI people, I had CIA people, I had NSA people, I had people on, on my interagency staff, if you will. Sure. And when they needed to make an official targeting handoff, I just, and they handed it off. As long as you know, John Casey okay. knew, and, you know, I mean, the commanders knew, you know, of course, we okay. they all knew. Um, I did get in trouble one time uh, flying to Syria because I thought I was going to catch a guy. And I was a little worried about the system that he would have gotten lost. So I said, I'm getting on that 130. I'm going. I'm taking this element. Uh, we're going to pick him up. We're going to bring him back. Nothing's going to bad. It's going to happen to him. We're going to turn him over to the Iraqis. I uh, torqued off ambassador. <laughs> <laughs> that that act of me flying into Syria. They had to do a, a whole investigation uh, of me. And 
Was it because you didn't alert the Syrians that you were coming? No, no, we had, uh, we had done all of those notifications. Uh, I, I wish it would have okay. been just as simple, but the one person that was out of the loop temporarily was the ambassador, the American ambassador. Uh, okay. Uh, everybody, like, like everybody in the world was in the loop, except for the ambassador. And I was a little upset, frankly, and I won't get into any names with the with the, the CENTCOM liaison to that ambassador because they had all the information. In other words, they, yeah. they didn't pass it to the ambassador. Oh, okay. So it's like I arrive and the ambassador goes, I don't know who the you are and why do you think you, you know, and who's responsible for this? And, you know, nobody ever likes my answer, you know, because I go, well, I'm responsible for it. No, I, I don't yeah. like dine out bosses. I, I I've just never done that. Well, well I want to. Sure. I want the name of who de, who determined who got on that airplane. Me, you're looking at. It. Like, <laughs> oh no, 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 no! I want to. What? I, that's who determined who got on that airplane right there, sitting on that ramp. Okay. <laughs> and told the crew. The crew's not responsible. The crew did all the right things. Yeah. yeah. I said, I told the crew, I get, you know, I want the name. Well, you got my name, Mike. Long girl. Yeah, I give it to you. <laughs> uh, you I mean, you, you can tell how that personality, I mean, it sounds good, but, you know, at some point in time, it's, 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 it's like a, a career ending kind of thing. I don't know if it was or not. Yeah. I'm four ranks ahead of where I thought I would ever be anyway. Right, so, right. It's all gravy now anyway. gravy anyway. Like, so I go, I'm not going to change my personality. I'm not going to change who I am. Um, sure. I'm a dedicated and loyal American. And I will fight for this country anywhere at any time. I mean, it kind of speaks to what we were talking about before about the bureaucracy. Like that guy, is, his only uh, – his only concern was who told you to be there. It's like, not, not why are you there? Hey, can I help you now that you right. are here? It was like, who told, you know, like once you focus on the right part of the story, man, that's, you know, there's a reason why I'm here and let's get this done. And then we can talk about all your other crap. You right. Know? And I would have gone through any hoop that he wanted me to. It's just that I had a C-130 on the ramp, blades turning. And uh, now at that time we were blades turning. In Lebanon. We were blades turning in Lebanon. But we had to fly over Syrian airspace, and which made it complicated because the Syrian shot at us, you know, and then they stopped. But, you know, so that's true. That made it more complicated. Uh, but yeah. everybody knew that was the route we were taking. I mean, everybody, like mm -hmm. the government of Syria knew. Like everybody knew. Okay. I mean, this, it wasn't like we were doing some kind of secret mission. Well, it was. I mean, the mission itself probably was, but the fact that you were flying there in that route or right. over them, you know, everybody knew yeah, that. Yeah, everybody. <laughs> so, but, you know, then I, I then we created the wing, the 93rd AGAL. So I go, yeah. I, I don't care if I ever get promoted again. I mean, this is the wing. This is the wing that I wanted to create. We created. Right. This is the wing that I wanted. I said, now there will be a wing commander job for all of these great ALIFs like the Shaq Beauchesnes and the Pete Donnellys and all of these great people that are going to come after. Uh, this is going to be their wing. That, yeah. that, that's how I saw it.
Um, and so I, I know this sounds like it's so self-serving, but I said, I didn't need to get promoted. Yeah. I created that wing and I loved everybody in it. And so I, I know it sounds funny, but I, I, I literally did not need anything else uh, out of my Air Force career. I think I could have helped in other ways. It was further than I ever thought probably ever should have uh, gone. And I love my wife. I love my kids. But they would tell yeah. you the same thing. I mean, doesn't mean they don't love me, but they would say. No, no, for sure. Uh, you defied the odds. Let's put yeah, it that way. For sure. So. Couple couple times. I, th- I think so. So. Um, yeah. But I look at them as opportunities. You know, you get an opportunity, Definitely. you run with it. Uh, you you do, you do with it, and um, not to say that I don't have personal and individual failures. I mean, you know, like I said, I'm not the uh, smartest guy. I mean, you know, you're never going to see my name on a top graduate, uh, you know, uh, list uh, anywhere. But um, I'd like to think I don't know. Although I think about the the combat losses that we've had in my units. Um, and I think about them all the time, but we didn't have a failure. We didn't fail. Now, why didn't we fail? Well, that's because the people who were doing the mission, it's because they didn't fail. So I don't want to take, I don't, I don't want to steal their valor or their expertise or their work because they're the ones that made it successful. That's true. I benefited from it. That's true. Uh, but people have asked me, it's just like, hey, when you jumped into Panama a long time ago, when you were a young captain and just turned major, um, what was the biggest thing that drove you? I go, well, what the biggest thing that drove me is I didn't want to screw things up on Rio Hato Airfield because I was in charge of running Rio Hato Airfield. We made a combat jump into it. We had great TACP uh, and great combat controllers and great PJs uh, all working. Uh, we made a combat jump with the, with the Army Rangers. Uh, it would be the second and third bats. First bat was at Torrios Tucuman. So we had two, and we had the regimental talk, uh, regimental commander with us. And when I jumped out, I was like three spots from him. So, and he was a great guy. That was uh, Colonel, Colonel at the time, Kernan, who had become General Kernan, uh, a, one of those great American Army commander leaders, you know, without question. The hyperness that I had was always about airplanes on a runway getting mortared. More than anything else, I have to tell you, that scared the shit out of me because. <laughs> I can imagine, yeah. Not because I was worried about my own safety. It wasn't. It wasn't that. I go. So if people say, so you were the airfield commander when there was a C-130 that had just done this heroic stuff by getting beans, bullets, or personnel, or whatever, and before they could take off, the enemy pops them with a mortar, and now you got a big fireball. So congratulations. Captain or Major Longoria, congratulations. 
That's what happened on your airfield. It drove every decision that I would make. I said, whatever, we're not going to have a Desert One on this airfield at Rio Hato. Um, 12th Air Force commander was mad at me, I think, for a little time. Com Alf at the time, Commander Airlift Forces, uh, was mad at me. That was the 21st Air Force commander. Because I told one the normal 130s convention that would come in later, I said, hey, um, this is engine running offload only. And I said, I said, are you prepared to get your pallets off that airplane within a minute? If you're not, you cannot get a landing clearance. Okay, that got all the way back to 21st Air Force. And I had people going, well, who in the hell does he think he is? We're going to fire that son of a bitch. We're going to shoot him. We're going to do something. We're going to, you know. Yeah. Who, who is he? What is he? He's a non-rated puke sitting on that damn airfield, uh, you know, saying he's going to protect it. I mean, it just, it doesn't stop. And I got, I got a lot of grief for it. Um, Was this during or after? Or so. The original uh, combat jump. As far as like the grief you were getting, like were you getting like transmissions from people like you better? Oh, well, the twelfth Air Force commander. Or... Well, no, the, the my conversation with the actual twelfth Air Force commander over the radio was basically it was the shittiest battle damage assessment that's ever been given in the history of battle damage assessment. <laughs> so the one seventeens were dropping on. Uh, battalion 2000 um, dormitory or whatever, you know, a little building. The yeah, 117s and a great combat control officer who planned this, that's John Korn, who, is, who mentored me when I was very young at Hobart, um, had been in on the Desert One mission in Iran, but you know, became an officer, and he was the lead planner or the 117 mission to go against that Rio Hato target. Although he wasn't in with us at Rio Hato, he was just planning it. He jumped into Torios to Um But the plan was, and the plan changed, that they would drop not on the building, but offset from the building by about, I would guess, about 100 meters. That changes everything. When you don't hit the building intentionally, you just yeah, create yeah. a big crater. Okay, well, your battle damage. What is the battle damage assessment supposed to be? Yeah, I mean, I mean, what? Well, yeah, okay, exactly. so we provided no structural part to the battle damage assessment. And a young captain I had working for me, Jeff Schuldheis, great American, who'd been a PJ. And we'd made him a combat control officer. So we had all the right credentials and very experienced. And he was an air traffic control officer before that. Um, he says, okay. He says, I said, well, measure the crater. He says, okay, it's about, you know, 20 by, you know, 42. I said, okay, how, how deep is it? Uh, he goes, well, it's about, I'm standing in it, it's about, uh, it's about, you know, 
uh, at one point, 14 feet, but for the most part, it's about like, you know, 12 feet or whatever. I mean, okay. that's actually a big crater. I mean, that's not a small crater. So right, right. I go, okay. I, so I put a little of that data in the battle damage and said, just a little bit of that. Cause, you know, we're still getting shot at. We're still in, we're like, happening. Yeah. Um, and sure, why sure. they wanted the BDA for the 117s right then, I, I, I didn't know, but you know, they're the bosses. I'm going to give it to them. The 117s are attacking yeah. and they're gone. I mean, the things right, that right, are right. going to reattack are AC-130 gunships, little birds, you know, I mean, you know, I, I, yeah, yeah. anyway, we were providing it. And so I put, I said, I said, besides that data, I said it was combat effective because Battalion 2000 ran to the hills. So in other words, whatever you did, now, if you wanted to kill them, no. Okay, we didn't kill them. Uh, did they stay and fight? No, they didn't stay. Now, other groups stayed fought. But those guys in that yeah, dormitory yeah. or that building, they didn't stay and fight. So I think the <laughs> F-117 crowd was elated because it sent a little data, crater size, combat effective, Battalion 2000, now one click into the hills. Yeah. And man, I don't know why that made the 12th Air Force commander mad. <laughs> and it was the worst BDA he'd ever gotten. I mean, what are you going to do? You, yeah. 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 I, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but remember, even as important as that was, wasn't important is I didn't want to lose an airplane on that damn airfield. Sure. Yeah, you're, you got you had your priorities. Straight, so the biggest sure. problem in the beginning was um, one of the MC-130s uh, lost an engine. And they had to do a three-engine uh, takeoff. Okay. okay. Now, that's a big deal. I got it. But it's also combat. But they had to get permission to take off from someone not at the airfield, like 12th Air Force or, you know, I go... So the air crew tells me this, and I go, okay. Um, and they didn't need me to do anything because they were talking SATCOM. To, you know, they, they had their yeah, own yeah. Uh, connection. They did get the approval, but they were about to be told by me. I didn't, I didn't do it. It was about to be. Take off or I will shoot you. <laughs> because you are a mortar magnet. Okay. I actually did not say that to anyone <laughs> over the radio. Uh, um, but I told one of my NCOs and he goes, oh, shit, sir, no, please don't, please don't say that. Please don't say that. I'm trying to keep you out of jail, sir. Please don't do that. Like, okay. So I didn't do that. But they took off. Yeah, yeah. And I was happy until it was 24 hours later. We started circling in the 7th Infantry Division, and uh -huh. they came in by conventional airlift mostly. But, okay. you know, they're coming in, basically, they're running off the airplane. And if they had a vehicle, it, it was off. So they were no right, problem. Right. 
However, my worst fear came to be. That runway got mortared. Exactly where a 130 had just taken off. So I'm lucky by maybe two and a half minutes. I mean, obviously they had it dialed in. I mean, they were trying to hit yeah, it. Yeah, they, were try they, were they, they weren't very good. And um, now the problem I had with my Tech P heroes, you know, you got Marty Klukas there. You got uh, you got great people. Jazz Erickson. Yeah, there. oh, Jazz, yeah. And Jazz knows I get jazzed up when I talk about <laughs> I go, I love my Tech P. I love them all. I love them all. But I'm a controller. Not a combat controller, but the my control paradigm normally includes an airfield. I say you just can't call in any weapon system like an A thirty seven, okay, and attack a target in the aerodrome that is the airfield without <laughs> me going yes or no. Cleared. Right, right. Not clear. You can do that out in the jungle. You can do that in the right. desert. You can do that everywhere else. I want you to do that. But this airfield. Well, we use AC 130s. I said, well, the difference with an AC 130 is that the weapon system is different. And they are almost perfect for jungle stuff. You right. can see who's who. You, if once you get them identified, you know, at the time, your know, options were 20, 40, 105. Well, we weren't going to use a 105, and we didn't in Rio Hato. We did at La Comedancia, you know, in downtown Panama City, and it was a beautiful thing, but not at Rio Hato. Different weapons require different environments, different situations, different, different requires different. And the best platforms that were considered close air support were little birds age sixes and gunships but the last thing i needed frankly was an a37 tell me how the a37 is going to know what to attack well we'll throw smoke really in a jungle this close how does that work tell me you're the expert tell me how that works Ah, uh, it doesn't. They're guessing. I got it. You're guessing. I can't have that at my airfield. So I was kind of an asshole. I don't, I don't know. So Jazz always thought, and I loved him. But, you know, the best, uh, Frankie, the best weapon against a, a mortar is counter mortar right then in, in a jungle at that mm. particular time. Not that we couldn't have used some other asset later or some, you know, if we had broken off some differentiation or we knew that some battalion was coming in vehicles, you know, and they were coming on a road that you could see the All-American Highway and they were on the highway. Oh, my sure, God. Sure. Yeah. Bring those 837s. Have them, have them go right down that, that highway and blow the shit out of everything. Because we're not there. Right. Yeah, I want you to do that. And it's not close to my airfield. I mean, I can actually be landing the right. C-130. That 837 can be strafing the crap out of that convoy on the highway. 
and we're all happy. Right, right. But when you get it uh, uh, mixed up, it could have been catastrophic. I was, I was driven by fear, yeah, fear of screwing up. Sure, sure. That's um, and I, I don't want a damn award for that. I, I just don't want to be the, you know, on the History Channel. You know, this is what happened at the Battle of Rio Hato. Right. Yeah, that's. Yeah. I I was trying to avoid the History Channel stuff rather than uh, being on the History Channel. So, uh, I don't know. I don't know of any war story, any juicy uh, war stories like other ones. I'm sure there are, but um, I've either forgotten them or, you know, could go to jail if I told them. (laughs) Well, wait, where was that one? What's something about Pakistan? Didn't you? Oh, didn't you do something about oh, yeah. like okay. you, didn't you get a little scrape in Pakistan yeah, or that something? That is another problem. So when we were transporting in the first part of OEF prisoners that we would take on the battlefield, we had a system that if they were collected in Afghanistan, we'd bring them to Bagram Air Base. Everybody knew that. There was a, a one-star army general in charge of that whole operation. Good friend of mine uh, that had been the Delta commander was a good guy too. And I liked him because we became friends when I was at USOCOM with the sink because he had a special assistant job and I had a special assistant job. So he was a general, I was a colonel. So, but he still considered me a friend. So it's okay. Okay. And he had that operation. And then we'd learned that there were other prisoners in Pakistan. So the complication there was um, different authorities for flying into and out of Pakistan, if you well can imagine. They had Mm -hmm. different rules for weapons you could bring and weapons you couldn't bring. They actually had a lot of rules. Well, we were going to be compliant with all those things. But I also developed a great relationship because I was the land component commander, which was CFLIC. You know, there's a CFAC and there's a CFLIC. I was a ranking officer at the CFLIC um, and developed a great relationship with the director of mobility forces at the CFAC. So, in other words, the big general that was in charge of all the airlift in that theater and the inter-theater work that would come from the big jets, you know, C-17, C-5, into theater. So the Dermont 4 had that responsibility. And I had to talk to the Dermont 4, even though, yes, I was a cast guy, yes, a controller, yes, airspace, yeah, all that kind of stuff. But I'm also, in the back of my mind, I'm a mobility guy. I spent a lot of time at MAC headquarters. I know how the airlift system works. Um, and as a combat controller, I supported nothing but airlift almost. Yeah, yeah. So it's not as if I didn't understand any of that. The Dermont 4 and I struck up a relationship because he knew I understood this and he understood that. And so we could talk daily. Because the biggest problems that we had with the C-Flick was not on CAS or what I would call ground-directed interdiction of the first part. Mm -hmm. It was on airlift. 
And everybody was unhappy with Airlift. You know, how much do we got? When are we going to get it? We need this here. We need this here. We need this here. We need this here. So I was on the phone with Dermot Four probably a dozen times a day, every day. Like, it never stopped. Never. Yeah. It, it, it literally never stopped. And people thought, well, I, like I'm an airlift guy. You know, so an airlift guy actually comes in. He's a young uh, captain. And he says, um, I said, wow, uh, an Air Force guy. Um, where do you work? He says, I work for the, uh, I work for the four, you know, the logging guy, Army Colonel. I said, well, what are you working on? Um, he says, I'm working on a briefing that explains how the Air Force is not meeting the airlift requirement for the Army. I said, say that one more time. You're working on what briefing? You're working on a briefing. I mean, I'm answering questions a dozen times a day, you're working on a briefing that says the Air Force is not supporting the Army? Oh, yes. I said, hmm. <laughs> well, Captain, stop working on that now. That's an order. <laughs> Have the courtesy of going to that Army Colonel and saying, Colonel Longoria, that Air Force guy over there says, I don't work for you. And that I have to leave this office right now and go to his office. I'm going to tell him that. I said, now I'll tell him, but you go do that. So before I did that, I called Dermot Four. I said, and he goes, what? What did you do? And he goes, I said, I did what I just said. And he goes, oh, that's great. That's exactly that. Okay. All right. Thank you, sir. All right. So. We'd really developed a really good relationship on what my role was going to be at that land component headquarters, uh -huh. because that's why I said I had multiple bosses when a boss would want me. So I was the 18th um, Corps Commander's ALO. Okay. I worked for the CFAC in war, 9th Air Force Commander on paper back home. Yeah. By order... I was assigned to be the liaison to the land component commander army, which is third army back home. So okay. third army commander, the land component commander, the 18th airborne corps commander, the CFAC, the ninth air force commander back home and the soft three star because my soft tech P supported Rangers and special forces. Right, right. I was a senior guy. So when I put this on a briefing slide, I have three army three-star bosses, one air force three-star boss. I mean, that's at a minimum. So that's yeah, four yeah. three-star bosses. And anybody asked me, Hey, the boss is calling. I'd have to, yeah, <laughs> which boss? Tell me which boss. Right, right. But the long and short of that, I had a great working relationship with the Dermot Four. He knew I understood the airlift system, and at the time we actually had 18th Air Force, which is the 
operating arm of the military airlift command. You know, I mean, it's everything revolves around that. We didn't have 21st and 22nd anymore. They were different entities. It was the 18th Air Force. So I understood the airlift system, uh, and he could confine me. And so when I gave him a heads up that we had prisoners in Pakistan, he goes, oh, shit. He says, well, I'm going to have to put crews against that to go pick them up in Pakistan, transport them across the country dividing line between Afghanistan and Pakistan and fly them into Bagram and so that they could be put into the facility where we uh, talked to them. All right. Um, and he said, uh, I, I don't know if I have any crews that can transport that because I said, it's actually a difficult task. I just want to think about the task. The first, and I said, because I was telling him, he says, how do you know? I says, oh, sir, I've been doing this for a long time. He says, okay. I said, you will get these prisoners. They will be of all ages, shapes and sizes. They will all be in man dresses. And they will shit and piss all the way up to the airplane, in the airplane, back off the airplane. You are responsible for floor loading this, I'm assured, because we have protocols for how to floor load them. I said, but if there's an aircraft emergency or anything, I mean, I'm walking him through all of the difficulties in planning. He goes, oh, my God. He goes, go meet those crews. Give them as much sensitivity training, not sensitivity training, but make them as sensitive to these issues as possible. Tell them the best protocols to use for safety of aircraft, safety of the passengers, for emergency purposes, et cetera. You, you got The crews have to fly all the right flight plans, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Everything has to be deconflicted in the AOC. I said, yeah, yeah, we got that. He says, can you do that? I go, yeah, I, we're not, so, okay. So he got me a C-21. It lands in Kuwait, picks me up, takes me down to Seab. That's where the, uh, the C-130 crews are. So I okay. them, everything like this. But the problem is I have to leave my long gun, my AR-15, my GAL-5, basically. Right. And I was supposed to leave my pistol. I said, I'm not going, I'm not going into combat without something to shoot at people. I'm, no. Right. So I had to leave that there. And I hid my uh, pistol. And we fly into Mark. Pakistan. And the prisoners are not there. Now, we have liaison officers that are working at high levels. There was a general, a one-star, and um, an Air Force major, I think. And so I, I, I went to them, and they said, we don't, we, don't, we don't know where they are. I said, well, this was supposed to be you know, a simple transload. Get them in the airplane, wrap them up. Everybody say, yep, yep. The flight to Bagram is an hour, if that. I mean, it's not long. Mission done, over with, complete. Crews go home, I go back, you know, everything. It's done. It's it's, it's done. Okay. Nothing ever works that way. 
And so my problem was I did exactly what I said I never would do. Uh, I was a group commander. Uh, and I was by myself. Now, I don't mean alone like, I mean, I was alone in that no one worked for me. Negotiate with the aircraft commander where I think you need to do this. And, you know, I didn't want to keep saying to the aircraft commander, hey, you want me to call the Dermop 4? You know, I, I could have done that. That's just not the way I, just not the way I, I do anything. You know, I explain to people sure, sure. what we got to do, why we got to do it, why it's important. And I go, what authorities do you need? If you don't have some authority, I will get you some authority to do something. Like Dermont Ford says, you, we need to take off within uh, two hours. Okay, so how can I now help you and talk, work with the load masters and all those kinds? Yeah, yeah. And I got the cops assigned to the crew. Their job, and as I told them, your job, you only have one job protect that air crew at all costs. Someone, anyone comes towards the cabin, shoot them. Deadly force is authorized. No discussion, no nothing. I don't care who it is. You protect the crew at all costs. That was the MAC protocol. It's not yeah. a, you know, it's a very simple protocol. Now, you still have to worry about safety of flight issues and all those other kinds. All right, so the air crew commanders were good. It's not that they weren't, you know, but I had to explain each time. But nobody worked for me. Like, no <laughs> one worked for me. Uh, my staff did back at the Sea Flake headquarters, and they were battle tracking me. Where are you now? So, you know, and I, I would, now I'm in Sea. Now, now, now you're going to Pakistan. Oh, the commanders in Pakistan. I, you know, and they would have to brief the land component commander, you know, where I was, because I actually worked. Yeah. Where's LA now? You know, you know where's Waldo? Uh, kind of thing. Uh, but the prisoners were not there. I had no idea. I had no intelligence. I had no idea where they were. I, I hadn't thought. Oh my God. And to be honest with you, I hadn't thought, I hadn't thought through that. Never expected. That yeah. It didn't dawn on you. They wouldn't be there. They're supposed to be there. So, I mean, I, I didn't expect it. It just, um, yeah. so I go, okay. And I asked this Air Force Major, I wish I could remember his name, but anyway, he's a good guy. I said, can I go there? He goes, I don't know. I go, you don't know? <laughs> I said, so who, I said, who, just show me the Pakistani Army Air Force, any, who do I need to talk to to see if I can get to the prisoners? Because I want to get these prisoners back to this airplane and I want to get out of here. And we find a Pakistani Army guy. And goes, uh, oh, yeah, uh, I'll drive you. <laughs> I go, this is wonderful. Just ask questions and you get, uh, you get answers. Yeah. So now the major doesn't come with me because uh, he goes, no, we don't really go out. We, uh, we have to stay here. I said, well, whatever. Uh -huh. So I get in the car and I go, great, let's go. Once again, no intelligence brief. I'm not, I am, I'm embarrassed to say that for a while, I really didn't know what I was, I said, I'm now traveling with a Pakistani army uh, in a vehicle. I'm going to go to prisoners. I have no idea where I am, where I'm going. I know where I just came from the airfield. So I think I can make it back here. 
Um, but that's about it. And I started thinking oh, about that as oh I was God. getting to this location. Man, <laughs> I really hope, really hope nothing happens. <laughs> I, can, yeah. I can honestly say I really said that to myself. I really hope because nothing's going to happen. Um, the Pakistanis yeah. have controlled. This is about 17 miles, maybe 20, 17, 20 miles from Peshawar. Okay. And that was okay. a bad location. True. Yeah. But um, the airfield was secure. Everything was secure around it. And, you know, don't worry. <laughs> why wouldn't this be secure? Yeah. And um, <laughs> we got there. No events. I said, you see, I'm telling myself, I, I worried about nothing. I'm like a, I'm like a silly little weenie ass, you know, worried about stuff. For even thinking of it, yeah. For even worrying it about hasn't it. hasn't happened. God. I'm glad nobody was with me that could tell them that I was worried about. You know, it's like, man, I'm glad I don't have right, to admit right. that to anybody ever again. So, um, and they have what is, it's not a yellow school bus. Okay, it is a bus uh, that I think was a school bus, but it's it's white. It's a white bus. It's very easy to see. Is my <laughs> and all the prisoners were in that bus and another vehicle. Um, I don't know exactly what it was. It wasn't a, an APC or anything like that. It wasn't a tactical vehicle, but another vehicle and and our vehicle. And we were going back, you know, 20 minutes to get to the damn airfield, or maybe 30 minutes, okay, to get back to the airfield. Yeah. Simple. Then all hell broke loose. The sniper must have been pretty good because he got the driver of the bus like, I think it was the first shot. Now, I didn't see that. I, I, I mean, arguably, I put that together after, you know, after I talked to people and after we got through the incident. But there was this other lead vehicle, um, the bus, and then we were behind. We were number three. Arguably, you know, the safest position. That's okay. Weenie, I was in the safest position. But... Everybody else was Pakistani right, right. or or a prisoner. Um, okay. Now it's the only American. So the bus then, it, you know, and it, and it hits some kind of bump or something, and boom, it falls over. And we go, holy shit. And then <laughs> we hear a lot more shots, and I go, I'm not going to start shooting at someone with a pistol that has a rifle. Right. I mean, I'll, I'll wait. I'll, You're just giving away your I'll position at that point. Out yeah. A little bit more of the situation, but I'm not just going to start shooting my pistol. I mean, it's, sure, sure. it's just not going to happen with me. I, I'd rather wait, right. try to figure out what I'm up against a little bit. Or maybe there's a little running yeah. involved or a little uh, more hiding or whatever. I will use the pistol. I don't, right. mind, I don't mind you doing that. But so 
the good thing is this guy had two AK-47s in the vehicle we were with. Nice. I said, can I use it? Yep. I go, okay. I never imagined myself, am I actually going to fire an AK-47 in actual uh, combat? Never, never thought I would actually do that. I mean, it just yeah. never crossed my mind. Um, and I didn't know where the sniper, I, I had no idea where they were coming from. I, I know they were, you know, like north of our position, but, and not behind us. Everything was, you know, kind of up front. But I, I right. couldn't tell. I had no idea. So the the lead Pakistani, not us, I didn't have a radio. The lead Pakistani had called for support. And two Pakistani helicopters would come. Uh, they would shoot at some stuff. I have no idea if they were effective or not. I mean, I, I don't know. Um, I, I have no clue. I, I never talked to them. Mm-hmm. Never coordinated anything. And I just said, how in the hell are we going to get these guys to that airplane? I said, I'm not going to use helicopters because I can't even talk to them. A different language. I don't even know if I can pull this off. Right. So that happens. And then some are getting out of the bus. They're starting to get out of the bus. A couple of the prisoners are actually shot. I go, oh, my God. Now, who would be shooting the prisoners to? Like, yeah, like, what was the purpose of the guy in the first place no, it, to it, shoot? I really had no essay of what uh, I could. I could see things, but I really had no understanding of my little battle area at that point in time. It was the weirdest thing I'd ever felt. Uh, Sounds crazy. Part of Panama was a little like that. But so there are a couple of dead prisoners. And I assumed they were dead. I just, you know, uh, we would walk over them. Uh, we would get to the front with my Pakistani colonel. Uh, and we'd go, uh, we're getting another bus. Well, well they're going to be <laughs> they're gonna be in the same situation. So I said, okay, are you up for this? I'm up for it. Okay. Locked load. We know they're up there somewhere. Let these guys sort it out. I don't have time to find the prisoners right now. We got to go take these guys out. I mean, who else is going to do it? All right. So he doesn't want to. And then I get another Pakistani that comes from the other vehicle. So now you got three of us. And we just start spraying the shit out of this. <laughs> It wasn't a ridge line. It was like a little ridge line, but you know, kind of rocky. And um, we don't know if we were hitting. I mean, literally, I don't know if we were hitting anything at all. Yeah. yeah. But it was suppressive enough that we weren't getting shot at. For sure. And so I started to see another bus coming, uh, and helicopters kept flying over. And so I asked them. I said. Can those helicopters put any kind of fire on that ridge? Can they put any kind of fire on that ridge line? Because if they can con- constantly put fire on that ridge line, I think we have time to transport these prisoners. Some of them are dead, by the way. We started out with, I think, 27 or whatever, and we worked our way down to 18. Um, 
so but we didn't do it we we we, we did not shoot the prisoners right, right. Um, apparently they shot their own guys for some reason i mean it was and, and so we were doing this transload and then i actually saw people i actually felt more comfortable for the first time tell the other guy i said we can get those guys we got them let them get closer they're they're I, you know i don't know why they didn't have a great they they obviously had a great sniper position why would they move i don't know why they would move are there different people i have no idea but there wasn't a lot of gunfire but there was enough to keep everybody's head down like four or five shots every minute kind of thing okay but it wasn't intense except the little act that we pulled to just shoot the shit out of rocks that we had no idea if people were there or not. I mean, we didn't. Right, right. Right. And two get closer, and I popped them. And because I was the only one wanting to shoot up there. But I saw them close enough, and I got now. I'm not saying I individually tapped them, I sprayed them, and I know I got because they went down. And there was no shooting after that. None. Wow. So we get all these prisoners back in the bus, and we get back to the airfield. And I see the major, and then this uh, one star, general, comes out. I go, sir, I'll have to give it to you in a debrief. Um, can I get these prisoners to Bagram, like right now? Because I got general, the Dermot 4 is wanting to know what the heck goes on. So I'll give you a debrief later. Yeah. It's okay. So we get back to Bagram. And I think nothing of it. Because I go, okay, it's just over. And, you know, I, I didn't want to think about it, frankly. Yeah, yeah. So that general took my report that I gave him a couple of days later. And he put me in for a, a decoration, which I didn't ask for. I didn't want. I wanted to forget about it, frankly, because uh, yeah. I didn't think I did anything that warranted a medal. I mean, frankly, I didn't think I did. Oh, uh, um, I do. I think I was thinking you deserve more than that. I mean, you you essentially saved everybody there i mean nobody you were the only one willing to act well i mean know, i had buddies kind of took charge of that, the whole situation that shot along with me and to this day i don't know okay. how many enemy per se there were i i don't know i know at least two uh, of them are dead i know that yeah that because i saw that and i witnessed that so i don't know but um i didn't even tell my staff you know, because I go, I was violating my rule never to be without anybody. And, you know, yeah. well, you know, um, now I'm happy. It's just like uh, uh, I'm uh, blessed with, you know, that that general didn't have to do that. Uh, nobody there had to support. I mean, you know, I mean, uh, nobody had to nobody had to do any of that. Yeah. You know, I mean, and we didn't plan any of it. Um, so, um, that's, well, I think that's amazing. I would argue the closest I've come though, to being killed is when I worked at the white house. Oh, really? If you remember in the, during the Clinton administration, 
was a wacko kid from either New Mexico or Colorado, went to the the media side of the West Wing. He was out beyond the gate, and he okay. just started shooting at the White House. I was walking from the West Wing to the press briefing area because I'd just given a tour of my children's godfather and godmother. You know, they knew I was. Okay. So it was like a Saturday. And um, I just, because I'm not in the West Wing. My office was the old executive office building. You could do that private kind of thing. Back then, you could actually do it now. You you, you can't do these private. Sure, sure. Walk around the White House thing. The security's a little tight. So I, I, had, I had finished, and I was literally from the West. If, if you look at the White House, you know, there's the, the port, port of call columns stuff. And then over here is the West Wing. And there's an entrance through the West Wing. And when people, like when the speaker or somebody comes out and they're interviewing someone who had gone into the White House, you always see the door of the West Wing. You have that yeah. vantage point. Because, you know, there's a little... Okay. There's a little driveway that, you know, it, it's, it's where they do everything. Well, I was walking from that to the press briefing room, which is right there. And I actually, I heard what I thought was, you know, I thought it was kind of like firecracker because I didn't expect to be hearing gunshot. Sure. Yeah. But I knew after it was, I went, okay, all right, that's, you know, and I look at the concrete, you know, there are windows and, the, and there's this white plaster concrete stuff. Yeah, yeah. And like, okay, that's like two feet above my head. Oh, so I go prone. I just fall around. I go, you know, I'm not a Secret Service guy, so. I'm just going to let them do whatever they're going to do. And I don't really want to participate. You know? <laughs> anyway, exactly. And I had no idea where it was really coming from. Now that I understand yeah. what it had to be coming from, you know, beyond the gate. So once again, uh, you've been in all these deployments, all these hairy situations by yourself. And then you almost got capped at the white house. That's crazy. Yeah. So that's amazing. Whatever happened with that kid? Did they, did they catch yeah, him? I think or? they've, uh, he's was tried and convicted and is spending oh, okay. the rest of his days. I forgot what his name was. It's like, um, unfortunately it's like a Hispanic name. I can't remember what it was, which, uh, reminds me of how difficult it is to be a police officer every day in this country. You know, you from eating a sure. donut in the, coffee shop till you walk out and someone takes a pot shot at you. Right. I mean, there are police that have to face that every single day in this country. And I have to admit, there's not a time that I've been shot at that I wasn't uh, scared. You know, you don't really sure. think about it a lot, but I go, yeah, I'm, and it takes time to process it afterwards. Bit. Right. Um, and in Panama, I'm glad that I didn't respond, you know, because a kid comes out of the jungle and we just jumped in, and the 
we jumped in with this uh, Gentex helmets. And so back in the day, you know, we didn't have all our special listening devices. We had normal headphones. And so you would take your Gentex helmet off and then have some other kind of helmet on. So, but when your Gentex helmet on, you didn't get a lot of ambient uh, noise that you need, especially right. when you're walking through the uh, jungle. And uh, a kid, he was a kid. And I was locked, loaded. You know, I just jumped on an airplane in the middle of a jungle. Um, and out of nothing but sheer fear, I was this close from um, just blasting. You know, because he... I hesitated. Of course, that could have been a bad hesitation. I mean, it could have been. Could have been bad for me. But he was a kid. He probably was like 11 or 12. Yeah. Uh, and if I would have done that, it would be something else I could feel bad about for the rest of my life because that that's a horrible thing. Um, I mean, was he armed or anything? Or was it just a no, kid? That, yeah, see, no I, think, I think that's just you being... I think that's you being trained, you know, I mean, that's, that's what we get trained to do is to, to identify a threat or a non-threat. And, you know, I think you, yeah, even though you're in that heightened situation, I mean, yeah, I think you made the right decision for sure. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I'm, I'm glad I, I, I didn't, but I was hyped. I was, I was ready. I was ready. And yeah, in that fearful kind of uh, stage. So but you were also professional. Yeah, and but the, range, the Rangers were very professional too. If you, I remember the way that they would about the the firing sequence would work. It was kind of unique. You'd hear, you'd hear some kind of fire from the enemy, mm -hmm. and then you'd hear a brup, 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 almost like they would triangulate exactly where it was, and then a law's rocket and. And then silence. <laughs> like, I mean, that sequence played out at, at least a dozen times. And that all came from yeah, Ranger yeah. fire. I mean, the, those were Rangers doing that. And so they were, they were reacting. Yeah, yeah. They were responding um, and, and, and somehow targeting where they had seen, you know, some incoming. And um, sure. did it with a degree of professionalism that is uh, superior. That, that I think definitely, um, but they were all Rangers that did that. Uh, so I became a fan of Rangers always. But after that, you know, Rangers were the uh, uh, for me in oh, terms yeah. of Grand Yeah, me too. Yeah, they're they're the best. They're the best. Uh, I I enjoyed my time there a great deal, and they were just I was in awe every time I went out with those guys. You know, the most professionals and. And you want to talk about lethality. I mean, they're just, that's their, that's their forte is, is taking it to the enemy for sure. So, um, uh, thank you for what you're doing and, um, keep up, um, doing great work. Cause I think you're, you're an important voice for, um, for our younger generations that are going to see enough, uh, combat to last them. And it's always, Amazing to me. I've had so many different common controllers or TACP when they're young tell me, 
I'm sorry, I'm ready to go. I want to go right now. I want to go. I mean, when I took over the 18th A-side, I had two TAC-P who came in. So, Sir, can, can you make me into a combat controller? I want to be, I want to be in CCT because I said, well, why do you want to be a combat controller? Because, because they see action. And I go, well, I said, now, be careful what you ask for because all of these battlefield airmen at some point in time will see action. Now, this was before 9-11, so I didn't want my getting to the 18th day side to then make all the TACPs want to, I go, you know, I, so I said, what I need you to be is a great TACP. That's what I need you to be. And I said, um, unfortunately, the combat will come. And uh, somehow I've sequenced throughout my career to be at the staff when we're at peace and to be at a unit when we're in combat. So um, I'm not predicting anything, but be careful what you have. But, you know, it's, um, I don't like, uh, I don't like it when people make distinctions amongst all my heroes. Um, because to some extent, they're distinctions without difference, and you're making a difference without distinction. And I go, yeah. um, there is different level of heroism. That's true. We make the Medal of Honor is different from the Air Force Cross, is different from the Silver Star, is different from the Bronze Star with Valor or the DFC. That's true. I understand that as a commander. I'm very well aware of the distinctive difference that we make there. Um, and that's why I hate to say a lesser award this or a lesser award that. I go, oh my God, stop saying that. <laughs> stop. Drives me insane. Um, yeah. Drives me literally insane. Um, and I go, to do what our special warfare airmen have done, it's just so undescribable that I, I, I literally, I'm, I'm just not capable of reflecting exactly what these people are. Yeah. And they're all heroes. Now, some have proven that heroism in combat. And so we do make a distinction between them. Um, we don't want to steal the valor associated with any combat action. And that's what I say. I say my career is based on great NCOs doing great things in peacetime and heroic things in combat. Those things propelled me individually. I benefited. From all that, I mean, I, you're looking at a guy who probably should have never made, you know, lieutenant colonel. Probably, I mean, I, you can't explain it any other way, and, yeah. and that's the truth. You know, and I don't have anything to hide, or, or you know, I'm not running for office. I'm not, you know, I don't have anything to politic. I don't have anything. I am going to finish a book, though, probably in the next three or four months. And I'm going to talk yeah. about this one cool. thing. And I'd be interested in your audience giving me feedback. I think we've done a good job of documenting individual heroism. I really do. I think we've done a pretty good job of that. Because so many of our great special warfare airmen are appropriately decorated with combat 
accolades. Um, sure. <clears throat> and their individual stories are for the record because you can look up these decorations. You can find these things very easily. And individually, if they want to write a book saying, hey, there I was, I'll buy everybody's book who writes that. You know, sure. any one of those special, <laughs> if they write a book, I'm going to buy it and read it. Okay, that's number one. Right. So I want them to, and I want to encourage them to do that. But what I think I haven't done as a deficiency, I didn't talk about all of them collectively. I can talk a lot about individuals because, I mean, I'm, I can, once I get on a roll, I can get on an individual story. You know, let me tell you about Tim Stamen. You know, let me tell you about Donald. Let me tell you. Yeah, about yeah. And I can start getting into it. Uh, I wasn't there with them. But I had to kind of study what they did, you know, to support right. to support them in the right way. So what I didn't do is say collectively, this is what the 18th ASOG did. This is what the 484th did. This is what the 9th AEG and the 18th, you know, because we went through a lot of multiple command uh, things that we created. And collectively, now probably, the 18th ASOG, in my mind, should have received a presidential unit citation. I had squadrons that received a presidential unit citation, and as a as the group commander, I didn't want to like steal that thunder because the army uh, had put them, you know, and they were attached to either the third ID or the Rangers or or whatever. And once again, I didn't want to steal mm -hmm. that valor because I wanted. The action of the 15th ASOS and the third ID, I wanted that reflected in and kind of of itself, if you know, I, I wanted people to, to talk about that in its own way. Um, yeah. But when I talked to a news reporter, I told him, I had airmen on every inch of this battlefield, both in Afghanistan and Iraq. Yeah. The whole enchiladas. And they go, you did? I go, yeah, it's not about me. So one last story, because I know you got to go and we'll watch the Super Bowl after this. But <laughs> no, well, a news no, reporter, a news reporter um, gets assigned to the 15th ASOS uh, as we approach, and this is uh, the uh, battle for Iraq, you know, so third ID is in Kuwait. They're about to launch, you know, the Marines uh, on, on the right, the third ID on the left, and they're about to launch towards Baghdad. And uh, Byron Reisner, the commander, one of those hero, angel, everything, great commanders, um, he says, hey, sir, guess what? What? He says, we just got assigned embedded reporters. I went, oh, shit. I mean, I actually did. And then I, I said that to him. Before. He says, sir, no. He says, sir, ah, that's the bad news. He says, I got good news for you, though. I go, oh, okay. What's the good news? He says, they're from the Houston Chronicle and the San Antonio News Express. You're a Texan. You're from Houston. That's great news, isn't it? I go, no. What's, what's great about that? 
the fact that I'm from Houston, give a shit. Like, okay, like, uh, I don't need to worry about embedded reporters. It's just not. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, he says, well, he says, you're really going to be excited of how we found out. I said, okay, how did we find out? <laughs> and Byron's great at telling these stories. Matter of fact, they're going to, 15th ASOS yeah. is going to have a reunion, I think, in a month or so or whatever at Moody. Oh, I hope cool. a lot of people go, uh, you know, so they're going to do that. Uh, Byron's great at this. So he says, well, he says, the quote from the San Antonio News Express guy was, what? I don't want to be assigned to some air support, weenie, back of the line, rear echelon, yada, yada, yada. <laughs> and I didn't say anything for a while, and Byron got worried. He said, sir, did you hear me? <laughs> yes, I'm trying to be not lose my mind right now. Um, and I said, okay, tell him this, or he can talk to me. I've had enough battalion commanders that I loved, battalion commanders that I didn't. I've told them all, you know, I love you guys. You guys, you're not going to get from Shinola. Stop talking about my TACP. Stop talking about my ALOs. You know, I mean, you've heard both sides of that story. I said, what I'm not going to do is yeah. now take it from a news rep an embedded news reporter that doesn't know what we do and is assuming something because of the term air support. Right, right. You know, oh, you're support. <laughs> you're, you're, whatever. Uh, okay. <laughs> I said, you can tell him this or I'll tell him. Tell him if he comes with us, and I don't know if I should let it happen, but if he does, you can strap his ass on the front of the Hummer, okay? I'll even give him a weapon, okay, and a laptop computer, and he will be the first to know if we're rear echelon or not, tell him I said that. Byron says, okay, do you mind if I clean it up a little bit with a lot of expletives that I use? Yeah, sure. So anyway, so this guy comes, his eyes are wide open. Yeah. It changed his life forever he now has battle buddies which i understand because you know it doesn't matter what service yeah. you're, you if you get a battle buddy they could be civilian air force navy marine it, it once you get in, in a battle with a buddy you, you, you're battle buddies forever that doesn't go away that's right and he wrote he wrote some fantastic articles on ford air controllers tap in this war you know he he nice. he did he he wrote the Mike Shropshire um, story the uh, yeah I mean he, I, 
and I, I read them and I go, oh man, I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it all. I love it all. He was there. He's telling it like it was. And that's the kind of truth that I like to hear. You know, I will listen to that all day long and support him all day long. Okay. Yep. And so we would have an opportunity to meet in Baghdad. I said, I'll meet you in Baghdad after we strap your ass to the home. Okay, no. I will meet you in Baghdad. Okay. Um, and so I did. We went to the the Alpha, but the, the we were in the palace and uh, mm -hmm. third ID, we were kind of yeah, I think we did it with water and tea or something. I don't know. Anyway, we were uh, toasting, you know, and people uh -huh. were smoking cigars. Um, and I had the occasion to meet the reporter. Said, oh, yeah, yeah, Michael Longoria, how you doing? You know, and he goes, um, I just got to tell you, everything that you said was, uh, be careful what you ask for because, uh, you know, we were at an objective peach and, you know, the sun and the, the bombs dropping. He just started explaining. I go, now he was there. So I always let someone who was in tell their thing. I don't interrupt him. I just sure. let him go. Um, so I go, was your mission to write about these great American heroes? Was it successful? He goes, man. Everybody loved it back at the San Antonio News Express. And they said, man, this is the best wartime correspondent reporting, you know, since, you know, the, what's his name guy with the, we were soldiers once and young. Oh, yeah, yeah. I don't remember the guy's name, but I hear you talking. About um, it, yeah. I said, okay, well, now, you know, now, you know what we do. And so when you hear air support operations squad. Will you be thinking rear echelon or you will be thinking up here? Which one? Oh, yeah. I know that. And he goes, I said, well, okay. Well, I'm happy for you and I hope you get back home. I said, oh, by the way, so you write for San Antonio? I said, yeah. I said, well, you know, and, and I'm a Texan, so uh, I forgive you of all your past sins. And uh, I love you. He goes, well, I'm. I, I really, I'm not from San Antonio. I'm from Houston. I went, oh. I said, oh, that's funny. I'm from Houston. He goes, oh, okay. He said, you're from Houston? I go, yeah. He says, well, what high school did you go to? I went, Lamar High School. He went, well, I went to Lamar High School. Mirabu B. Lamar High School on Westheimer Road? Yes, that's where I went to school. I went, well, we could be the same. I'm what was your name again? You know, like, what was your name? Uh, Sid Christensen. I go, Sid Christensen. I don't, I don't remember any Christensen. Well, you wouldn't have known me because I, I played football. And I, I said, I wouldn't have known you because you <laughs> played football for Lamar High School. What years did you play football for Lamar High School? <laughs> so now I'm. <laughs> Curious because I played football for Lamar High School. So he says, "Well, from '72 through '75," and I go, "Well, I played football for Lamar High School from '72 
to 74. He goes, and he looks at my name. <laughs> no and way. he goes, Come on. goes, Longoria. He goes, I don't. Uh, he says, you know, I don't remember you, but I think we had a quarterback who was like all state quarterback that his last name was Longoria. Yeah, he's like, yeah. I went, <laughs> come on, dude. I went, I don't know, probably an asshole. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I go, of course, he couldn't put it together. Give him a break because I go, he just came out of an intense, intense. I mean, just right. a day prior, he was at Objective Peach. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Um, and I said, well, yeah, uh, I was the quarterback for Lamar High School. And I said, I'm sorry, though. I still don't remember. <laughs> don't remember. <laughs> I said, well, I was, I was really on the junior varsity. I said, oh, okay, that's, that's, that's all right. Uh, I mean, because I didn't. Varsity he didn't didn't know the, the sure, team. Sure. and it's not that I was uh, special or anything like that. It's just that they were younger. I I, I didn't know, I didn't know. Yeah, of course. Uh, it's just funny how even even through all that, like he didn't put it together that you were you were the same. But guy. today, today, now he and I are are, are kind of close because he always calls me and he always puts stuff in oh, that cool. are good. I said if you write good things about my tech team, you you can ask me for a quote anytime. He wrote some nice. great pieces on uh, Del Toro. Oh, no, okay. And I was very uh, happy with that and very proud of him for writing that. Uh, and he wrote some great things on our folks. So I invited him to the Tacpe Association dinner. Uh, and I asked permission from Tom Case. And I said, can I have permission to make him an honorary TACP Association, life member, whatever. Uh, yeah, yeah. And Tom Case is a great guy, you know. And, and he says, absolutely. Oh, yeah. I said, uh, as long as you keep writing good things about these guys. Right, uh, but right. it, <laughs> what, what he didn't know, even though he knew all of this stuff about the third ID, he thought that that was the war. In other words, there was no other Iraq war except for the third ID. Oh, okay. Because he didn't see the other pieces and parts. And I said, I had airmen in the north and the south, the east, the west, in the middle, in the side, on the right, you know, left, right, like soft, Everywhere. conventional, otherwise, you know, Marine liaison. I mean, uh, the entire uh, battlefield. I said, please write about all these great Americans too. Because they're just as decorated as my 15-day sauce is, if not more. You know, the, uh, you know I said, right, right. it literally does not stop with these guys. They were everywhere. And that's why yeah. we won. So, and he, he's, he's, he's a convert. If, you know, I mean, he became a convert, you know, way back when. He was a convert sure, to sure. TACP writ large. Uh, and he's in San Antonio. So. It's good. Well, I hope uh, uh, I hope I've given you a little stuff. Um, oh, sir, this is 
this has been great. I mean, like I, said, I could listen to you all night. Um, and you always say, you always question why, how you even made it past major. It, there's no question in my mind how you made it. I mean, just your, your, your attitude and your, your, um, just your ability to see through the garbage and, and do the right thing and just your drive. I mean, it's, it's just obvious how you made it to where you did. And I can't thank you enough for everything you've done for the career field and for all the guys. I mean, I really do appreciate everything you've done. So, and, and thanks for coming on here. You I can't thank you. I love them all. all right. We'll do. We'll do. And good luck to you and keep doing what you're doing. We'll do, sir. Right. Thank you. Thank appreciate you. it.